So let me just ask you this question. What comes to your mind when you hear the word leadership? It's one of the buzzwords of our generation. There's plenty of books written about leadership. There's leadership podcasts. There's TED Talks about leadership. And the thing about leadership is you may not have the perfect words to describe it, but you know it when you see it. During this pandemic, we've seen good leadership and we've seen bad leadership. Well, how about this word? Leader. Who comes to your mind when you hear the word leader? I've been watching The Last Dance with Michael Jordan and the Chicago Bulls. And the theme has been about his leadership and his relentless passion to win. Maybe you think of a political leader or a business leader. For every person who thinks that person is a good leader, there's probably an equal portion who would call them a bad leader for some reason. Well, today, we're going to look at a passage where Jesus defines what true leadership is. And it's not the popular opinion of leadership in that day. He is going to flip the script on what leadership and greatness really is. Well, we've been in the series that we're calling Marked. This is Simon Peter's account of Jesus' life, and it's dictated to and written down by John Mark in what we know as the Gospel of Mark. And so today, I want to do something a little different. That we're going to look at three different encounters where Jesus is teaching his disciples what leadership and greatness is all about. And I've asked Jake Musselman, who's one of our Midtown pastors, and Lee Cote to help me teach this message. And so we're going to start off in Mark chapter 8. In Mark 8, Jesus will leave Capernaum, which is his hometown right around the Sea of Galilee. And he's going to go all the way up to Caesarea Philippi. Now, Caesarea Philippi is not on the way to anything. Jesus travels two days out of the way to have a very specific conversation. And then they will go back home and start heading for Jerusalem where Jesus will be arrested, put on trial, and crucified. But Jesus wants to prepare his disciples and to prepare you and me for, for what leadership in this new kingdom is all about. So we're going to pick this up in Mark chapter 8, beginning in verse 27. It says, Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? Hey guys, what's the word on the street about me? What are people saying about me? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. You see, the Jews didn't believe in reincarnation, but they did believe that departed souls might empower living men to carry out their work. And this is what people were saying. This was the word in the street. Now comes the real question. Jesus does what Jesus does, and he gets real personal with them. In Mark 8, 29, it says, What about you? He asked. Who do you say I am? This is the way of Jesus. I know what everyone else thinks about me, but what about you? What do you think? What have you decided? 
The way of Jesus is that you have to make a personal decision about him. Well, Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Jesus is revealing himself through Peter's confession. He says to his disciples, I want you to be very clear who I am. But then he tells them, don't tell anyone about this conversation. Jesus says, from here on out, I'm heading to Jerusalem. This is not about a destination. This is about a destiny. He begins to explain what will happen when he gets to Jerusalem. Here's what it says in verse 31. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. And he must be killed and after three days rise again. This is so confusing for the disciples. They don't know what to do with this. Jesus has just revealed that he is indeed the Messiah. These are exciting days because they think that he's about to go to Jerusalem to overthrow the Roman government and take the throne. This is what everyone thought the Messiah was going to do. To be their savior from oppressive governments. So when he says he's going to be killed in Jerusalem, they're thinking, Jesus, what are you talking about? This doesn't even make sense. And so Peter, he decides to take matters into his own hands. And he pulls Jesus aside. He's like, Jesus, you and I, we need to have a talk real quick. It says that he spoke to them plainly about this. Jesus was speaking plainly to his disciples and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke Jesus. Peter rebukes Jesus. Jesus, you need to stop saying these things. Let me just give you a lesson about leadership, Jesus. If you talk like this, people are not going to follow you. Now remember, Peter's describing this encounter to Mark and so he's probably saying to Mark, I didn't have a clue of what Jesus was doing. I just, I just didn't know at that time. Well, verse 33 says, but when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. So just picture this for a moment in your mind. Jesus looks at the disciples, but then he rebukes Peter and he says, get behind me, Satan. He said, you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human Concerns. In other words, you want a kingdom like all the other kings have. But I'm not that king. This is not that kingdom. This is not why I've come. Jesus then, he gathers the crowd that's been around him. He wants everyone to hear what he's about to say next. He wants to make it clear what leadership in the kingdom looks like. It says, then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples, and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. I think you can hear gasps in the crowd. In other words, this isn't going to be fun anymore. This isn't going to win any popularity contest anymore. If you want to follow me, this is going to cost you something. For us, this is symbolic to take up your cross and follow Jesus. But for them, it was literal. They had seen crucifixions. They had smelled crucifixions. They had seen the aftermath 
of crucifixion. Maybe they had even known someone who was crucified. And Jesus tells them, from here on out, it's going to cost you something to follow me. But included in these words is an extraordinary invitation. Here's what he says next. He says, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Jesus describes the upside down way of God. If you are after trying to make yourself great, if you're trying to promote yourself, you will inevitably lose what you're after. Jesus says, whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. The gospel is merely the good news. Whoever is willing to lose their life for Jesus and the good news that Jesus brings will ultimately find it. In this moment, He was inviting them. And I believe Jesus is inviting you and me to live and lose our lives with purpose. To live and lead on purpose. We are consumed with preserving our lives, getting what we deserve, looking out for ourselves. But if you follow that path, you will neither preserve your life or have anything significant to show for your life. So the question that Jesus proposed to them and to you and me is this. Will you follow me? Because that's what leadership looks like. That is what is the only way to achieve greatness in this kingdom. Because to lead is to follow. But Jesus doesn't end there. He flips the script on what life in this new kingdom is all about. When God flips the script of the Messiah, He also flips the script of our lives. To lead is to follow, and to live is to receive and give. I've got three young kids, and that's enough for us. Kids are a lot of work, so sometimes you might wonder why God would tell us to become more childlike. Even if you don't have kids, you remember being a kid, right? You couldn't wait to grow up. I couldn't wait to get my driver's license and be able to drive anywhere I wanted. I wouldn't have to wait on anyone. I wouldn't have to ask permission. I would just get to drive. You couldn't wait to grow up because then you could eat whatever you wanted. Our kids have never eaten peas. You know why? Because Janelle and I vowed that we would never eat peas when we grew up. You couldn't wait to grow up because then you could buy whatever you wanted. You would have your own money and you could do whatever you wanted with your own money. I couldn't wait to have my own checkbook. Does anyone remember checkbooks? Parents, some days don't you just want your kids to grow up? In this pandemic, you are parenting 24-7. There's no school or daycare for a break. No babysitters are coming over. It's you every minute of every day, and they need or want something all the time. You're tired of them asking for snacks every 10 minutes. I don't know what we were thinking, but we decided that during the middle of a global pandemic, we would teach one kid how to ride a bike without training wheels, and we would potty train our youngest kid at the same time. We were just tired of training wheels and helping them get started and changing diapers. Why can't these kids just grow up a little bit? So one evening after dinner, we decided to take a family trip around the neighborhood. Oldest kid on the bike. Janelle was going to help the middle kid riding without training wheels. And I was pulling the potty training kid in a bike trailer. 
we went down our street and we were coming back on the next street over and the older kid starts yelling, ow, 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 while the middle kid starts whining about being too tired to ride all the way back, while the youngest kid starts saying, I have to go potty. Oldest kid's shoelace had gotten wrapped up all the way around the bike pedal and was now trapped in her foot in her shoe, which was now tied to the bike, while the middle kid had stopped pedaling and dropped his bike in the street and was crying on the sidewalk because of a skinned-up elbow, and the youngest kid still had to go potty. Why? It was just supposed to be an easy family trip around the neighborhood. This wouldn't happen if they were just a little more grown up. We push for independence. We want to be free to do what we want when we want. We don't want to have to be dependent on someone else's time or someone else's money. We certainly don't want to be told what to do. I'd prefer to earn what you owe me rather than receive what you give me. I'd prefer to get something from my investment rather than give without an expectation of return. But when Jesus talks about living in the kingdom of God, he doesn't use a strong, mature, independent adult as the example. He points to a child. What can you and I learn from a child? And this is what Mark records for us. They left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. He's teaching his disciples again about how the Messiah will die. It's this ultimate act of service that drives every part of our lives in the kingdom of God. It affects our leadership and it affects our attitude about living. And the disciples still didn't get it. And so Jesus explains a little bit more. He took a little child whom he placed among them. And taking the child in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. Yes, we love and and value children, but let's be honest. They don't come with power or influence. They aren't movers and shakers. They are terrible for professional networking. They're dependent on someone else, so they don't bring any valuable resources with them. They can't even bring anything to a potluck. You don't get a lot out of throwing a dinner party for kids. But in Jesus' kingdom, you receive kids with gladness. You give what you have to those with less, because welcoming them is the same act as welcoming God Himself. The disciples wanted a Messiah who would conquer their enemies, not one who would die for them. How often do we want the same kind of God? I want the God who conquers my suffering, not the one who walks through my suffering with me. I want the God who takes my side, not the one who loves my enemies. I want the God who makes me rich, not the one who makes me generous. I want the God who's found with the powerful, not the one who walks with the weak. But that's not the Messiah of the kingdom of God. God is the Messiah who dies. He is the one who is with children, and He expects the same of those who will follow Him. A while later, Jesus emphasizes this whole child thing again. People were bringing little children to Jesus for Him to place His hands on them, but the disciples rebuked them. And when Jesus saw this, He was indignant, and He said, Let the little children come to Me, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. 
And he took the children in his arms, he placed his hands on them, and blessed them. Children understand that they have to receive. My kids ask me for a snack because I'm the one with snacks to give. They don't have to earn it. They can't go out and buy it, but they know that they can receive it. They also trust that I will give them a snack. Yeah, the family bike ride may have been a disaster, but I'm not scoring the bike ride or or potty training or anything else to make sure that they earn their snack. There's nothing in the kingdom of God that can be taken or earned. All of it is only ever given and received. That's why you and I have to become like children in this kingdom. There's nothing that you could do to earn anything from God, but the beauty of it all is that God has never asked you to earn anything. You certainly can't take anything from the God who made the universe and rose from the dead. You can't force God's hand through your will or your behavior, and you don't have to. All you have to do is be willing to give up your independent attitude so that you can receive what is being given. In truth, everything we have has been given to us. Our lives are full of gifts we have received from our Father in heaven. And once we understand that, then we're quick to give. So you give your presence to those with less status. You give your influence to those without connections. You give your power to those who are oppressed. You give your resources to those who are lacking. What does living look like in the kingdom of God? It looks like becoming the child who receives, not the adult who earns. It looks like giving our lives to those without status and power and resources. To live is to receive and give. That's what it means to flip the script. Oh, kids, I mean, just listening to Jake and the season he's in reminded me of those prime days of parenting. Those are good days. But one of the phrases I remember repeated over and over again that I said to my young kids was, did you hear me? Or are you listening? And the answer most of the time was yes to the hearing, but no to the listening. Listening problems are not just reserved for kids. We've all had those long conversations with someone. Maybe it was a conversation that we thought was going to be difficult or took a lot of courage to even embark on, only to have that person completely miss or worse, ignore what you were saying. I have this weird skill that drives my wife crazy and has caused tons of stress in our relationship. It's the ability to be distracted and yet hear everything my wife is saying to me. Yes, everything she's saying to me. And so it usually plays out like this. We're sitting in the morning, perhaps we're drinking coffee, waking up during the first part of the day, and she'll begin to share and I'll begin to nod. But I'll stay engaged with my phone or with whatever else I'm doing. Eventually she'll say, are you listening? And I'll proceed to repeat back everything she said. And it makes her insane and it makes me an idiot. I hear her, but I'm not listening. But even when we listen, we may not always understand. That was often the case with Jesus' disciples. And as Peter continues telling us the story of Jesus through Mark, he shines a huge spotlight on this reality. At this point in the story, they're making their slow trek towards Jerusalem. Crowds are following them, as always, and there's a buzz of anticipation in the air. But in the midst of the journey, Jesus pulls them aside and tells them again. He he warns them again what is waiting for them in Jerusalem. And it's not going to be 
pretty. He says, we're going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. And then he just keeps walking south, leading the way towards Jerusalem. And this is so confusing to his followers because remember, he had been talking about this kingdom and they were excited about the possibility because normally when you have a kingdom, you have people in power, people with position, people with authority. And then you have all the other people. And his followers had been living with this understanding because that's how they were living in this time with the Roman kingdom at work. But the problem was they were hearing, but they were not really listening and definitely not understanding. Here's how we know that. Because right after that, and the text actually says, then meaning right after Jesus had given them this graphic description of what was waiting for them. It says, then James and John, the sons of Zebedee came to him. Somehow they caught up and they were, they were wanting to have one of those side conversations. They're trying to keep it on the down low so no one else can hear them. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. In other words, we need a special favor. Now, all that spitting and mocking and flogging stuff you were talking about, that sounds really terrible, by the way. But if you don't mind, we need a favor. And Jesus is so patient and he asked them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said, it's pretty simple. Just let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. Could we be at your right and left hand? Could we be your right and left hand persons when you're in charge? I mean, we don't mean right now, not that gory stuff but the glory stuff. You know, after all that spitting and flogging and dying is over, we're, we're probably gonna hang back while all that's going on. But once you've established your kingdom, we want key positions of authority. And Jesus just smiles and says, guys, you don't know what you are asking. You still don't get it. You aren't tracking with what is going on here. Now, fast forward a short time later, the other 10 hear about what's happened and they're not happy. Now, the reason they're upset isn't because perhaps James and John offended Jesus. No, they're ticked off because they want the same opportunity to have that primary position. They don't think it's fair. So an argument breaks out among the disciples about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God. And I can't even imagine what's running through Jesus' mind. But once again, he calls them together and he says, one more time, let's go over this because it's about to get real. He says, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord over them. He said, you understand how the world works, right? How those in power so often rule mercilessly for their own benefit. And he says, and you know, their high officials exercise authority over them. You know the system. Those with resources and influence leverage that to gain even more resources and more influence. Guys, you get this, right? And the disciples are shaking their head and they're nodding because they, they got that part. They get it so much that they want to be at the top when Jesus establishes his kingdom. And then Jesus pauses and he looks at them and really he looks at me and looks at you. And these four words he's about to say should stop us in our tracks. Here are the four words that if you actually want to be a leader, you actually want to demonstrate childlike faith. Maybe you've been given influence or you have position or resources. These four words will make you worth following. Jesus pauses and says this, 
Not so with you. Not so with you. My kingdom is going to operate differently. My kingdom flips that script and reverses the orders of things. He then describes it. He says, instead, whoever wants to become great, it's fine to want greatness, he says, but let me tell you how it works and what that looks like. Whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be the slave of all. And then before anyone can object, Jesus probably stares off beyond them and takes all of our excuses away and says, for even the son of man, talking about himself, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And this was so confusing to them. Give his life, become a servant to be great. What is happening? And what kind of kingdom is this? Well, let me tell you, it's the one where we are invited into holy weakness. It's an invitation for us to climb down the ladder to greatness because that's exactly where we find Jesus. You see, we don't know much about the first 30 years of Jesus' life, but what we know is it was a time of serving and obscurity and humility. We may talk about it a little bit once a year at Christmas time, but it really is something we should be reminded of more often. Jesus exited his glory, laid aside all the power, position, and praise that it carried and climbed down the ladder. For 30 years, he was hidden and it was 30 silent years. He labored in obscurity, the son of a carpenter born to a disgraced teenage mother in a small forgotten village. Alicia Cole wonders out loud about this and how he must have wrestled with it at times when she says, how must it have felt knowing he had the power to heal, to have to walk past children suffering with leprosy? What would have been like knowing that his conception was miraculous to be unable to defend his mother when others whispered about her past? And how agonizing would it be when his word could one day raise the dead to life again, to stand by while those he loved, perhaps even Joseph, his father, died. Basically, it was a 30-year fast from praise and power, position and potential. It takes a great deal of strength to choose weakness. And Jesus chose voluntarily. We, we rarely, I rarely make that choice. In our daily lives, we much prefer self-reliance. But I would argue that utter dependence is the truer friend for our souls. So many times I've mistakenly complained that it feels like God is absent. And I just need to stop. If I'm truthful, God is never absent. The challenge is that myself is always so present. So when Jesus tells us not so with you, it's an invitation to fast from our need for self. Listen. Hearing the life of Jesus through the eyes of Peter has been super insightful and super challenging. But today is really next level because today forces you and I to stare straight into the mirror of our selfishness and our self-centeredness. We can't avoid it or explain it away. I mean, pastoral confession, especially during this time of pandemic. Spiritual leadership requires us to look closely at our motives, check our egos. We can mask the need of self by putting a spiritual spin on it and actually miss what God is trying to do in all of us. I don't care whether you are living in the midst of a pandemic like we are now or living in a season of prosperity. Descending into greatness challenges everything we are normally told to pursue, but it's the only direction from which to pursue God. It is what ultimately separates the kingdom that Jesus invites us to be a part of and the kingdom of this world that we are a part of every day. And what makes it so helpful is that Jesus did not just speak of the kingdom, but that he demonstrates it for us as well.
In just a moment, we're going to receive communion together. And so I want to give you just a time to retrieve the cracker or the juice that you have set aside for this communion. If you're watching The Crossing and you're new to The Crossing, this is a moment where we spend each week as followers of Christ reflecting and remembering His work. Perhaps you're considering the claims of Christ. I'd invite you to begin a conversation with us, maybe in the chat, towards a deeper relationship with Him. Each week, we've been committing a verse to memory from our journey through Mark. And so as we prepare to receive communion today, let's pause with the bread and the juice and reflect and memorize this verse from a little earlier in Mark's accounts of Jesus' life. It speaks to the ultimate decrease that we must make as we follow him, that sense of dying to self. It's Mark 8.35, it says this, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. Let's repeat that again. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. And now, Let's take the bread and as you're holding it there and you're passing it around to those who are watching with you, I wanna encourage you that just as Jesus took the bread, he gave it to each of them with him. He said, take and eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. So right now together, let's take and eat of the bread. Tells us as well that he took a cup He said, this cup is my blood, which will be spilled for you. And each time you drink of this cup, you remember my death until I'm with you again. So very prayerfully, wherever you are watching from today, we invite you to take this cup together. Will you pray with me? Father, we're so grateful for today and from living rooms and our locations, wherever we're watching, around our city and around the world, we ask that you would just help us to follow what you demonstrated God, that we would descend to a place, Lord, where we would be weak, but you would be strong. God, that we would see greatness as a descent. God, that you would help us today to be determined not just to hear, but to actually do throughout our days and the week that is ahead. And we ask it in your name. Amen.